0: Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. Welcome, new Libby host Brent Zuber, and his thought provoking conversation with microbiologist Troy Fiener. Take it away, Brent.
1: My name is Brent Zuber. I am a volunteer with Rainforest, Alberta, and this is a podcast for Libby, the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast series, it's first hosted by Del Degan, who I call a friend. And so it's my opportunity to introduce someone I have met recently, Troy Feener. And I had a connection to him, or my connection to him, came from an individual I was sitting with at the Aztec Awards this past November, Ian Lewis. So troy on the podcast why don't you kind of introduce yourself and
2: how you how we became introduced sure yeah thanks for having me so i am the program manager at the alberta center for advanced diagnostics that's an institute center at the university of calgary and the director of that center is dr ian lewis who you had been sitting with at the aztec awards and based on that interaction with dr lewis you had Scheduled tour of our facility at the Alberta Center for Advanced Diagnostics. You came by. We had a great, uh, great conversation and tour. We showed you what we do and the cool toys that we play with. And then you extended the invitation to me for this podcast. I'm grateful for it. So I guess I could uh, explain a little bit about what the Alberta Center for Advanced Diagnostics does and why it exists. Oh, just before we, we get to that, where sure. are you and how did you get to ah. this position? Yeah, good question. Serendipity. I won't say I planned anything in my life uh, because I didn't. The only thing I did plan was I wanted to be a veterinarian, so I planned to go to university. <laughs> that was it. So I liked horses. I liked dogs as a kid. So that's why I worked hard in in, in high school to try and get uh, grades good enough for for university. I had a guidance counselor tell me about what that when I applied to the University of Calgary, I should also maybe spread my options to you know sate and Nate. It's funny because I took that as a bit of an offense. (laughs) I took offense to that, which is really strange because what I'm doing now has more to do with those kind of, you know, expertise than I than you know veterinary research or or basic science. So I started university way back, I won't say when, at the University of Calgary. I did a bachelor's degree, didn't get into vet school highly competitive, and I wasn't that good of a student at first, (laughs) so first year always takes a bit of a a toll on some of us. And so I then did a master's degree in the lab of Dr. Ed McCauley, current president of the University of Calgary, and Dr. Andre Bure, co-supervised in their their lab, Uh, and then finished my master's degree with them, and then my wife was doing postgraduate degree In another city and we moved for four years and then she ended up getting transferred back to Calgary and then I came back and I started working for Dr. Andre Bluier in his lab as a lab manager. So pretty straightforward nothing special about that and I worked for him for 14 years so what I what I learned in that process of working for Andre was I learned how the University of Calgary worked. I got very good at you know Getting things done, operations, if you will. So that was sort of my training in operations. Not, um, yes, it was science. I still did experiments, but the operations side was a skill that I learned over, over years managing labs. And then that, that position ended and I started down the hall for Dr. Lewis, who was at that point in time, a relatively new faculty member in the Department of Biological Sciences. He had been recruited to the University of Calgary from a postdoc at Princeton and his job was to do translational research in infectious diseases. So he had an innovates chair to do research in taking new technologies that he developed and putting them in the real world, so application. So I started managing his lab and (laughs) that was a bit of a roller coaster because I went from a lab of seven students and and, and, uh, postdocs to a lab of 30. So really large scale uh, budget as well scaled up because he had gotten two large-scale grants from Genome Alberta to do the work that he was hired to do, which was create new technology for diagnosing infectious diseases. So I've been doing that now for six years. It's grown and evolved, and I think we'll probably talk about how that looks and, and how I got here.
1: That's excellent. So, just to clarify one important part, you were born and raised in
2: Alberta and you're still in Alberta at the University of Calgary. Is that correct? No, actually, I was born. I was raised in Alberta, but I was born in uh, Nova Scotia. So, okay, I was born in Halifax. Yeah, I came here, but I came here when I was four. So, I'm more or less Albertan. Okay. So, you but, are but an important like most of us yeah, uh, in Alberta? Yes, yes. But because I'm a maritimer, I guess I was born with a little bit of a uh, gift of the gab, uh, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> that is perfect for fun. I'm so glad. We'll see how we do. So one of the things that
1: and, and I just touched on it with regards to, I guess, the openness. And so we're going to get into sort of the specifics of where you are now, but you've been around the University of Calgary for a period of time. What's mm-hmm. it like? International students, international cooperation, but you've got, what What does the
2: environment look like just to kind of do sort of that 100,000 foot level? Sure. Yeah. So the University of Calgary has changed uh, a lot since I started coming. So I, you know, I started the University of Calgary and. the Mid 90s as a student. And then, you know, up until the 2000s, uh, early 2000s, I left. When I came back, things were changing. It went from a primarily, you know, um, I'll say service driven institution where it did a lot of teaching. A lot of the research was good, some of it world class, but a heavy focus on geology, oil and gas, those were the big big industries that supported the University of Calgary but I would say under Dr. Cannon Dr. Elizabeth Cannon and then she brought in Ed as her VPR at the time the University of Calgary changed a lot it became a lot more focused on becoming a world class university and so what I've seen over those you know 15 plus years is the University of Calgary really embracing the the leadership role that it has in creating industry and diversification in the Calgary and Southern Alberta environment. You know, and I've I've been really excited about it. You know, you get proponents saying that, well, pure academics, you know, pure research shouldn't be driven or influenced by industry. But at the end of the day, I, I, you know, even those basic scientists, that's where a lot of our current technology came from, you know, Cryopreservation. It was it was a basic researcher who saw that frogs could be frozen solid and then come back to life. How did they do that? Right. Well, he did the research. He did the basic research, and then it got translated into an entire industry. And that I think is is you know they they're married together. This basic research, the need for basic research, but the need to translate that research. And that's I think the 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 bit of a black box that, uh, that it's it's a bit harder. Because there's a lot more external factors play that aren't under our control, the economies of scale, that sort of thing. So I've seen the University of Calgary really grow and mature in that expertise and talent acquisition over the years, and it's great to be in a place. And if I, you know, I always get asked, "Why are you and Dr. Lewis in the Department of Biological Sciences? Because you do medical-based research. Why aren't you at the med school? Why aren't you?" in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. And the reason I think that works for us is because of that basic research component. We get to collaborate with people who do basic research at the Department of Biological Sciences. We get to interact with ecologists, botanists, microbiologists, biochemists, uh, you know, the whole gamut. They come and they use our facilities and our expertise to help them answer questions or maybe commercialize something that they stumbled upon. And so I think that's a great place for us to to be because it keeps our creativity and our our diversity in, in our expertise really honed. Now, I mean, from my experience, Hollywood suggest, would suggest
1: that the Ivy League schools have been doing this for decades and are the taking ideation. Do we even rate? Like, are we doing a better job now than yeah. we have in the past? And, and it's not meant to be a loaded question. It's just meant to be like, are we doing OK with? With taking that pure
2: research and getting it up to industry, yeah, uh, it's a really interesting question. I think we do really well at our traditional industries like geology, geophysics. We're now getting into quantum computing. We do really well, and and Calgary's an entrepreneurial city, so I think we do. We have that that spirit, that drive. So I think we we bat above our weight class for sure there, but you know. A wet lab is a wet lab. What makes the difference is the are the people who work in it and the vision of the people who who, who lead. And those are not things that are exclusive to Ivy League schools. The differences are the budgets, really. That's the <laughs> but you'd be amazed what you could do on a on a, on a shoestring or a bootstrap budget. Uh, because again, back to that that statement I made earlier about being in a place where you collaborate. I don't have to buy all the resources if, the res- if, if collectively, the place where I'm at has the resources and they're willing to share and collaborate. And I think that's one of the strengths of, of a place like the University of Calgary. Not saying that doesn't happen in other universities, but um, we compete for different resources, right? The ecologists don't compete for the same grants as the as the biochemists, for instance, right? So we're not in it and competing against one another as much as they they may be at the Ivy League schools another Another thing about you know our ability to to do things at the University of Calgary, and this is an example of one project that we've done in our lab, and it was the first project that we started. It actually just finished, which is kind of cool. So five and a half years of research, we collected every genome sequence, every protein quantitative protein expressed, and all the metabolomic information, so all the compounds that were created by infectious organisms from a 20-year period in Calgary. It's the largest project ever done of its kind globally. And our collaborator, the person who did our genomic sequences, is the Broad Institute at Harvard. So we led the project. They collaborated with us to do this. And they're. it's actually a fantastic example of how Alberta and Calgary are able to compete in a, in a global
1: arena. I think that's an excellent transition. We went from the 100,000 foot level. You've now given us a perfect example of what you do. Now describe a little bit more about what ACAD
2: is. <laughs> sure. So ACAD is relatively new at the center. Uh, when we started out, it was the Lewis Research Group, which was Dr. Doctor Lewis' his lab. As I mentioned, we had a couple of programs that were funded early. One was Developing a new diagnostic platform for detecting, identifying bacteria and their antibiotic susceptibility to, you know, all the antimicrobial drugs like amoxicillin, penicillin, you know, what we're familiar with because that current method takes a very long time. And so there's a great desire in healthcare setting to have that spina. So that we can treat patients more accurately and 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 more quickly with the drugs that they require so that was one project that we tackled and i'll tell you a little bit more about that because it's now been spun out into a company that is trying to commercialize that technology the other one was the large multi-omics project that i mentioned now omics is just a way of saying it's you know it's like ology you know you put omics at the end of a word and it just you know it's like Bacteriology or microbiology; these are—it's just a term at the end of a word to, to, to give it some, some purpose. But omics is so we've got genes, which are the letters that we call them—you know—the the gene sequence. It's like a series of, of of compounds and molecules that that determine who we are as, as individual organisms. And bacteria are no different, plants are no different, animals are no different. We all based on genes. And DNA, so genomics is the study of those genes. So that's that's sort of like the, the root code of who we are. Those genes or the, the DNA gets translated into proteins, and proteins do all the work. They're amino acids that are that are put together, and and they form these you know structures. And these structures have functions like enzymes, and transporters, and things like that in cells. And again, they're very ubiquitous across bacteria, plants, fungi, and, and animals. So you've got DNA to protein, and then the proteins do the work. Well, a lot of what proteins do is they help us digest food so that we can grow and function, right? Everything eats, everything secretes. The proteins do a lot of that work, and those, that work is, is called metabolism, and that's where you get metabolomics which is the study of those metabolites, those compounds. So when I eat a banana, it's got sugars, it's got minerals and nutrients and fiber. And we have to digest those using the enzymes, the protein. And we can study those interactions using some tools. Yeah. So we have taken the study of metabolism and proteins and, and genes and sort of combined them in this large first ever study of infectious microbes that cause bloodstream infections. Bloodstream infections are really serious. It's also known as sepsis. When you get a bloodstream infection, your probability of dying when you don't get the right treatment goes up 7% per hour. So that's pretty high. (laughs) And and so what doctors do now is they they just give broad spectrum antibiotics as soon as they suspect you might have a bloodstream infection. They'll take some blood from you and send it off to the lab, but it might take two to five days to get the results back, right? And they're not willing to wait because in that, in that interim, the patient's likely to die. So they give broad spectrum antibiotics, which is great. Antibiotics, greatest invention ever, as far as I'm concerned, for human health. The problem is the way we use it relies on not knowing which antibiotic Is the best one. We're just gonna give the broad spectrum one. But bugs are really smart too. They evolve. And we have seen the evolution of what we, you know, in in common common vernacular is just called superbugs. These are bugs that have developed resistance to antibiotics and antimicrobial drugs because we use them very often in our society. You know, you go to the doctor, you have the sniffles, he gives you an antibiotic. You may or may not need that antibiotic, but the doctor isn't going to take a chance, especially if you're an elderly person and got a compromised immune system. The doctors don't want to take that chance, so they're going to give you an antimicrobial. And what that does is it exposes those bugs to more and more of those drugs, and they learn how to become resistant to them. They have gene mutations, they, they transfer genes between one another. And so what you get are these development of superbugs. And these superbugs can be very deadly when you don't have any, any more drugs to use. We're seeing that now in the Calgary population. We've documented these drugs, these bugs are present in Calgary, where there is no more antibiotic to use against them. And so we need to be better at, at figuring out which bugs or which antibiotics to use against these bugs. And so that was the purpose of this research program is we know a lot about patients, but we don't know what it is about the bugs themselves, the virulence factors, the things that make them deadly, the resistances that they have and their traits to help them evade the immune system or survive on surfaces so that they can potentially contaminate instruments and surgery and things like that. We don't know enough about those. And most of what we know comes from doing the research in a lab, not actual. Large cohort samples of bugs that are actually infected and potentially killed people. So the cool thing about Alberta and one of the reasons why Dr. Lewis came to Alberta is because we have a huge consolidated healthcare system in the province. One system, two core labs, one in one in Calgary, that have they do all the diagnostic testing. And for 20 plus years, they have collected infectious organisms and put them in the freezer. And Dr. Lewis saw that and said, wow, this is a you know, and and the ability to connect those those bugs to the patients that got them and the patient medical records for 20 years is unheard of anywhere almost in the globe. There's very few places where that's possible. So that's one of the superpowers that we have in Alberta, you know, makes us Ian calls this the Alberta advantage. Well, you know, it is an advantage. People want to come and work on this. So that's what we did. We took all of those bugs. We did the full genome sequences on. We spent five and a half years doing this, just collecting the data almost.
1: You're an overnight success.
2: Yeah, overnight success in five and a half years. So we collected all that information. And now we have this huge repository of data. And I mean massive amounts of data. And we can now look at the bacteria, the microbes that cause those infections, and say, what is it about them that made that one deadlier than that one? Or maybe there's something about the population dynamics, the way the, the ecology, if you will, of the bacteria, these infectious organisms in hospitals versus in communities, or in populations in care homes, or in patients on dialysis. There's these this This data can now be utilized. To determine better to treat, but ultimately prevent the infection. The cheapest way to, the cheapest healthcare option is to prevent the the disease or the disorder.
1: And I I just have to think, you know, something that relates to every single person that came out of the pandemic for me was, geez, some simple things like wash your hands, like watch, you know, we are biological entities living in a biological world, right? And I think we had a chance to talk a little bit about you know, the level of exposure, the length and the duration and then the, and the um, volume of exposure and stuff, so, of anything, right? And I think that's, you're really taking that now and going, for a person, how does, what causes that absorption, I guess, I mean, maybe better in your words than mine, like
2: how, mm-hmm. how does someone catch? It, you know, it's it's often really obvious. So when a patient is on dialysis, they have a, cap, a central line put in because they're, they're getting their blood cleaned by a piece of equipment because their kidneys aren't working very well, right? So that's what happens when you've got, you know, when you're on dialysis. Well, that that central line is an open hole into your bloodstream, and you're going in and out of it. So it's it's like you left the door open, uh, and so you had things <laughs> things come in, and that's just a risk that we we have to take to keep people healthy. You know, it's you balancing these risks and 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 benefits so another one is urinary tract infections are often a leading cause of bloodstream infections in certain types of patients primarily in female populations now that's just based on anatomy more than anything else you know the 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 ana the the tube if you will is longer in a male than it is in a in a female in general and so it's a shorter path for those bacteria to go to in, to contaminate, and I'm putting it in really simple terms right okay. there's There's people who are far uh uh more knowledgeable on that than I am. but in simple terms, this is why you know things are more prevalent in certain populations of people, but there are also bacteria that form biofilms, and those biofilms are very hard to treat so When you're getting a hip replacement and you've got all this, you know, metal and synthetic material going into your body and it's going to be left there. If there's a biofilm on those instruments or those pieces or heart valve replacement, or if there's, you know, these biofilms can form sometimes easier on synthetic material than they can on biological material. And so you have this potential source of contamination that can cause sepsis, cause infections in, in in your bones and things like that. So there's lots of ways bugs can get in. I want to, and
1: this isn't to minimize it, but I want to inject positivity where I can. And, and I sure. went through high school with a friend and, and he went into medical school and then almost became religious with regards to the, du- the duplication of systems in the human body and our mm-hmm. the human body's ability to fight off infection. And I think, if I may, almost everything we do is to support the human body in its fight, you know, to, to survive. Is that sort of fair?
2: For sure. I think so. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, I'm I'm not going to say that the, the work that we have done over the past five and a half years hasn't been in, and won't be incredibly transformative in the way that we treat infections. But one of the really kind of hit you over the head duh, moments that we had was, it actually, the, the state of our, of our bodies, the health of our bodies has more impact on ability to recover from exposure to potentially, potential pathogens than the pathogens themselves. If you have diabetes, if you're an elderly, uh, in an elderly population, if you are on dialysis, like I said, all of these sort of comorbidities, uh, that, that's the term for, of, of of humans, they add up to you being more susceptible to get infections and not recover from those infections. So I had sepsis, personal story. I had sepsis when I was 21 because I had appendicitis. My appendix ruptured and I was in the hospital for two weeks. And I was on three different courses of antibiotics because the first one didn't work, the second one didn't work, and the third one finally worked. So that process, two weeks of being sick—if I was eighty-five, I wouldn't have even made it past the first day or two, right? But I was twenty-one years old. I was fit. I was healthy. That means a lot. That's really important. But that leads me to you know something that I think is really important for people to remember: we are an aging population. We have a population that is growing older. I think the number was a bit staggering. I can't remember. It might have been three hundred thousand new or 75 and older in the next five years.
1: So is that the McGill study? It was just on the news last night. I think so, uh, yeah. just released.
2: Which is terrifying if you are an <laughs> infectious disease doctor, because that's the patient, those are the patients you're going to see more. Well, we, we're going to need a bunch of resources to tackle that because our, our healthcare system is built for our current situation, not for our future situation. And if we don't plan for that, we're going to get caught on our heels and people are going to die. It's going to cost more. And the people who have less severe illnesses aren't going to get treatment as quickly because all the resources are going to the, to the really sick. So
1: I love technology. Technology provides great advantage to us today. And one of the things, wearables, right? The watches yeah. and all of those kinds of things we can detect earlier now. Now we, now we've got those indicators. Signal to noise, though, says you have to recognize when you've got a signal. Is that, is it really like, and you've talked about like this, this one hour time lapse or uh, cycle type time. Yeah. Is that in parallel to what you're doing with Greek cards too? What could happen to someone? Are
2: we doing better at that detection and reaction kind of thing? I think, I think it's work, you know, needs must. When we're faced with a challenge and it's scary enough, we will do what we need to do as a race. That's just, you know, being philosophical. But it's true when there is, when there is a, a critical scenario, we can, there are many tools in our belt. Which ones we choose will get weeded out. You know, the best will come to the top really quickly in a, in a, in a moment of crisis, right? COVID being a great example of that, right? But now, post-COVID, we've got a resurgence of a lot of things we didn't worry about. You know, SV, these are because we are quite so damaged. We did really well at fighting COVID, but we those, th- those things we did were also good at preventing us from getting things. But now our immune system is a bit lazy. It's forgotten, and now it needs to remember those things. So it's very complicated. We, you know, monitoring, back to your, your question, monitoring, uh, this is where diagnostics I think really is key. 75% of clinical decision making is done through diagnostics. And diagnostics can keep you out of the hospital. Detecting something sooner and treating it is better than not knowing about it. Cancer answer is a great example. It's better to know early than late, because we can do interventions earlier that we couldn't do later. So diagnostics, I think, are a critical thing for us to be a sustainable healthcare delivery system. So investing in a test that detects prostate cancer early prevents a lot of downstream a mortality, which is really the the kicker there. And cost treating patients who have prostate cancer, and advanced cancers is very costly and and take up beds, take up resources, and those then don't get to other people who may need them as well. In true Rainforest Action talked about what
1: you're doing and, and can provide to the ecosystem in a perfect world. What could the ecosystem help you with? As as those that are listening to this. And, and you know, you, mm-hmm. you throw, here's your test to throw out some chum in the water, if you want to call it that, or, you know, right. what, what would make your environment that much more effective
2: and and smooth the path yeah without getting too political policy policy is really important and policy only changes when there's a political when there's when there's the will and it's communicated to the right people so how do you make decision making uh at at a municipal provincial and federal level that impacts what tests are are delivered we have minimal resources, but an expanding need. So how do we, how do we optimize that? I think policy is really where we need to be proactive as a community about, um, the importance of new technologies, developing new technologies, making resources available to develop these new technologies. Uh, a, a, a prevention is always better than a band-aid. Treatment at the end, right? If we can, like, smoking cessation. It wasn't until it cost governments more than they were making on the taxes for them to do anything about it. programs to, co- you know, to to prevent or, or to reduce smoking. Now you're seeing that same scenario for alcohol. A lot more programs that are being funded because of the negative impacts that alcohol has on our healthcare system and delivery. The same is going to be true for infectious diseases. Infectious, I I read it before. I read something this morning when I was preparing for this. It just staggered me. It was a 2022 Nature Microbiology modeling infectious diseases. And (laughs) I still can't get over it. 400 million years of lost life per year from infectious diseases. 400 million years of lost life annually. That's greater than cancer or cardiovascular disease. And these are, if we could detect new emerging infectious organisms sooner, faster, cheaper, we could prevent so many lost lives globally. And I say cheaper because that's what makes it possible to be global. We're very lucky here in North America. We have lots, you know, we have great economies and good income. I I know. And... and this is the the
1: coin term or whatever, but lab on a chip. And and that's been very popularized over the last few years. And maybe you could just
2: sort of expand on what that means. the Yeah. So the big drive uh, is is miniaturization um, because smaller means cheaper, generally speaking. Right. You see that in electronics, it's it's cars, everything. A smaller car is cheaper than a bigger car. It, It just makes sense. Same thing for for diagnostics and technology cheaper usually means, or smaller usually means cheaper but the there is you know we're fighting against physics to get there right so we've got to figure out new ways to do it and that takes research that takes that takes money so here's here's the one of the problems of of a system like canada and i'm not saying it's not you know i'm a strong proponent of of universal healthcare But the way our system currently works is, we get pots of money for diagnostics, we get pots of money for hospitals, we get pots of money for family family medicine, and those pots of money don't really talk to each other very well. So if I want to spend a bit more money in diagnostic, I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily doing that because I know exactly the downstream effect is going to have on primary care hospitals. I don't. It's not an ecosystem where we're not uh, as as reactive as, let's say, the American system is. Now, the American system has other large problems, right? It's not perfect, but an HMO will know that it will spend hundred and fifty dollars on a test to keep to save fifty thousand dollars in hospital costs later on, right? That's an easy math to make. But if you don't know if if you, if if that hospital system is not communicating that that test, the impact of that test. So that's where you know. I say cheaper is important, but we have to take that whole that whole thing in context. It needs to be globally cheaper, right? It needs to be a holistic cheaper. So yes, a cheaper test is important for adoption, but it, it and and there's argument that it'll be more globally accepted if it's cheaper as well, which is great. It it can benefit more people, which is always good. But there's still economic drivers that need to be taken into consideration. You need to reimburse people for the R&D time that it took them to get the work done. That was a lot of it, bootstrap, sweat equity, and and public dollars. A lot of public dollars go into doing this kind of research, and not all of it spins out into something that's economically that productive. And just on that point, I you know in the, the tech ecosystem
1: project management side we also often talk about do you learn from successes well yeah you kind of learn from successes but you also learn a little bit more from what i'll air quotes you nobody know, can see this but air quotes failures and the purpose is it's not a failure it's the learning that goes behind that so fail first yeah, totally. fail fast you know, learn from that and keep going, that iteration process yeah totally do you, do you guys stub your toes from time to time at do you learn a lot
2: <laughs> i'll use an example i'm not going to name any names in our team at all but um you know, we have been doing, we're developing a new diagnostic platform and that platform is, it works really well. But there are things that happen in the world and let's just say bacteria aren't always, they're not always participating and, and and you know, trying to help us in any way. I mentioned that bacteria sometimes create new resistances, well that happens sometimes in the lab. So we are working with a strain of bacteria to test our technologies and all of a sudden our technology is not working. And we're like, what is going on here? What did we change? Is this something we have to worry about? Like what's going on? Well, then, you know, we spend a week, two weeks trying to figure it out. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of money. So
1: you're you're saying the effort. chemists have it easier because they're just working with compounds <laughs> that are the same and have been forever. You're yeah. dealing with things that are changing all
2: the time. They're changing all the time. And so it's not that we're, you know, we're making mistakes. It's that we're dealing with an imperfect system, a system that's constantly modifying and changing. So, you know, it's i i an example is a new technology that's pretty cool. It's called phage therapy. And phages are viruses that infect bacteria. And you think, "What? Oh my god, mind-blown. We, you know, we I've only I've only known that humans have viruses. Well, no, plants have viruses, bacteria have viruses. Every living organism just right on the planet has a virus that can infect it. Well, one of the things that we've done is we've hacked those viruses to kill microbes, which is pretty cool. So now we've got an alternative to antibiotics. But like any good thing, bacteria are really good at adapting and getting resistant to those phages. <laughs> so it's, it's another tool in our belt. It's not going to solve the problem. And so these living systems, these biological systems are really complicated and they adapt and they change and we have to adapt and change with them. So that that iterative process is expensive. It takes time and we have to learn from it. And it's just human. Like that is just the way it's going to be. We're always going to to be learning as the planet adapts to the pressures we put
1: on it. I had such a wonderful time coming to meet you and your team on site. And I hope this conversation captures a small spark on that. We could talk for hours, but (laughs) We're, we're yeah. we we filled our podcast time, and you know the final question that, that's given to everyone is, you know, final thoughts. What's the future look like? What's how would you like to kind
2: of what yeah, would you like to leave I'd, our listeners? I'd like to leave everybody with the 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 knowledge that Alberta is a really cool place to do things outside of oil and gas. I'm not dissing on oil and gas because we all we all benefit from this great lifestyle we have in Calgary and the, and the province in general. The but there is so much more in in Calgary and and Alberta than than just that you know we're not just the Houston of the north we have such a, a huge diversity of technology and talent in this province. What diff, what makes us different uh, is is our our ability and our willingness to do more with less. Yeah, you know, we really uh, we work together as a as an ecosystem in this province, we can do amazing, really amazing things. That's what I'd like to leave it with. What a
1: wonderful. I want to sincerely thank you for your time, Troy. It's my introduction to you was serendipitous. Every time we chat, I am always enlightened. I Think I'm going to get it. I want to know, is there already a t-shirt, everything eats, (laughs) treats?
2: I'm not sure, but I mean, that could be a money maker. It It could be. Everything eats, everything treats, you're right. (laughs) <laughs> I'll buy one. That's awesome. You can make it, up by buy it.
1: Okay, sounds great. Thank you so much for your time. It has been a pleasure. And thank My you mind. for everyone for listening. Really appreciate you tuning in.
0: If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo busting, sector agnostic, all industry open sourced, ego shrinking, ecosystem building, entrepreneur focused, wide open social barrier smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was brought to you by New Idea Machine. NIM helps new software developers, UI UX designers, and product managers gain mentored, hands on industry experience. And at the same time, we provide companies with risk-free tech talent. Definitely a win-win-win situation. Visit newideamachine.com for more information. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.